and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox. As always, today we have a guest from the Wall Street Journal, national baseball writer Jared Diamond. Check him out on Twitter at Jared Diamond. He has covered baseball across the decade beginning in 2013, also spent time with the Yankees and Mets, and since 2016, the national writer over at the Wall Street Journal. Jared, thanks so much for jumping on our podcast. We do want to mention, uh, we'll get to the book that you recently published, Swing Kings, but first want to introduce you a little bit to our audience and also welcome you, obviously, to our podcast. How are things on your end, and are you staying safe? Yeah, we're hanging in here. I'm here in uh, New Jersey, which obviously has uh, been hit very hard uh, for a while now during this time, but um, you could sort of now just start to see maybe uh, some light. Things starting maybe to ease up a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping that there's some good news coming in this area soon. Well, we're glad that you're doing okay, and we wanted to have you on today to talk about your book, but also there's some pressing baseball news coming out today as we record this podcast, and I'm sure this week will be very busy for you. And you mentioned that it's getting better, right? It was really bad over in your area. And I think at the start of all of this, it hit baseball hard because of the immediacy, right? I mean, their season was getting ready to start in two weeks when everything was shut down. On the football side, they've come up with multiple plans. NBA had to stop. But football has, I guess, the, the convenience that their season starts later, right? So they have time to adjust. Baseball's been sort of on the go. They've been adjusting on the fly here. And Jared, they're coming out with a proposal between Major League Baseball's Players Association as well as the owners to try and come come up with a contingency plan to get this season going. Can you fill us in on any of the details that you know related to the practicality of the latest uh, that could potentially get us watching baseball on the field this year? Well, Major League Baseball is is getting ready to make a proposal to the Players Union on Tuesday that's going to outline its idea of how to stage a season in 2020. That idea involves playing about a half season, roughly 80 games or so, 81, 82 games, playing games uh, in major league ballparks with no fans, as many major league ballparks as possible, given local health ordinances and guidelines and things of that nature, Uh, limiting travel by playing only games in your division and in the other league's corresponding division, So these are some of the ideas that are being thrown around. Uh, There's a lot that still needs to happen before anything could actually become reality. It's not going to be easy, but that's where baseball is right now. Now for you, what is the biggest roadblock between the two, the players associations and the owners at this current moment? There are two actually equally large obstacles, uh, both of which need to be resolved before anything could continue. The first one involves health and safety protocols. Uh, That is a very important issue, as it should be, to the players, which is uh, how much are we going to be tested? Does Major League Baseball have access to the amount of testing that would be required to keep everybody safe? Uh, Have they acquired those tests ethically without taking them away from frontline workers and other sectors of the economy that might need those more? How often how many tests they have and how often will players be able to be tested? Uh, What happens when or if, but really when, let's be honest, somebody tests positive for the coronavirus? What's the protocol for that? This is a huge issue 
that needs to be overcome. Uh, perhaps Major League Baseball has a plan for it. We don't know yet. Uh, my understanding is that these health and safety issues are going to be a part of Major League Baseball's proposal to the union, which they're giving on Tuesday. But that needs to be sort of viewed as a prerequisite that testing and protocols for health and safety are in place. Number two is the economics. That's the one that you're hearing a lot about uh, in the news, which I think is interesting. That's sort of been the one the media has latched onto. Uh, because I, I would almost say that one is secondary to the health and safety issues. But the economics do matter. Uh, they're going to be playing games without fans, which means that owners are not going to be making nearly as much money as they do in a typical year. And they're expected to ask the players for concessions to take pay cuts, perhaps a revenue split, uh, something that baseball union has long rejected. Anything that sort of resembles a salary floor or cap has been something the union has been totally against the league's expected to propose that even if just for one year this year so those are the two issues they're both sort of equally important equally big doesn't mean it's impossible but it is going to be a bit of a challenge to get this started i feel like something that's really interesting that you noted a couple things the abundance of testing i feel like that is probably the main obstacle aside from all the financials that players are thinking about and saying, okay, I feel comfortable entering this facility knowing that we have these tests readily available. And also we will be told in a reasonable amount of time whether or not we're healthy. Number two is the financials, like you said, related to a a revenue share or a split. Could you kind of expound upon that, what it means from a player's perspective and how that affects the league as a whole? Well, what it would mean, we don't know the specifics of the proposal, exactly how this would be done, but essentially what it would mean, and I say this in very general terms, is that players, instead of receiving their full salaries or even a prorated amount of their full salaries for 2020, they would receive, let's just say hypothetically speaking, this is just a number I'm throwing out there, 30% of their salaries. Let's just say that's the number. They get 30% of their salaries. The rest of their compensation for 2020 would be determined by revenue uh, that is made by the league based on their TV revenues, because there's not going to be fan revenues, ticket revenues, concessions, etc. So whatever revenue is made by baseball this year, uh, they would have some percentage that would be kept by the league and some percentage that would be distributed to the players, and that would essentially determine into each individual player's total compensation for the year. This is a system that's not unlike uh, the NBA. Most other sports have some sort of revenue sharing plan in place. Baseball's been different. Uh, They fought really hard to not be tied to league revenues, to have guaranteed contracts. So this would essentially, this would be a big change in baseball's economic structure. And it's one that as of right now, the players union insists they are not amenable to in any way. So it's, it is going to be a fight. I'm really looking forward to, well, what transpires this week, Jared, because it's just getting started. I feel like even though we're at the stage where we can potentially expect some serious stuff to happen uh, moving forward related to the start of baseball. All right, let's, let's get into your book, Swing Kings. Really interesting premise behind it. And you talk a lot about the hitting revolution of Major League Baseball, even going back to the Ted Williams era, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, could you share with us what inspired you to write this book and and where it all came from? You know, it really started my first year covering baseball. 
which is funny because that was a long time ago now. It was all the way back in 2013. I was covering the Mets for the Wall Street Journal. In that offseason, in between 12 and 13, the Mets signed Marlon Byrd to a minor league contract. Now, Marlon Byrd was 35 years old. He had been in the big leagues for, you know, a dozen years or so, and he was coming off a steroid suspension. So suffice it to say, this was not a signing that generated a lot of attention. It was it was sort of viewed as a nothing sort of transaction, one of many sort of transactions baseball teams make that don't get much attention. In fact, I don't think I even really wrote about it at the time. Well, lo and behold, Marlon Byrd not only makes the Mets that year, by the beginning of May, he was their cleanup hitter. He ended up being their best hitter that year. He had an absolutely incredible year, set a career high in home runs. It was remarkable. So all year long, I was sort of asking him, like, hey, dude, uh, how is this happening? Like, how are you, like, kicking ass like this? Like, how are you so good? And he really didn't say. He was very coy. He kind of talked about maybe making some changes to his swing, but wouldn't really get into it. It was not till the end of the year when he had already left the Mets, he had been traded to the Pirates, where finally sort of let me and others in on the secret, which is he had spent all offseason working on his swing, remaking his swing with a guy named Doug Latta, who was a, a swimming pool repairman who owned a batting cage in the Los Angeles area, who never played baseball above essentially low-level level college. And according to Marlon Bird, this guy, this random guy, taught him more about hitting and more about the swing than any major league hitting coach ever had in his, his dozen-year major league career. Well, that absolutely blew my mind. I didn't understand how that could be possible. Uh, well, guess what? We started hearing more stories like that. Uh, a year later, Justin Turner and J.D. Martinez have their breakouts and have similar stories. Josh Donaldson has his big breakout around then, too. And it's sort of when I realized, okay, this isn't a one-off. This is a real revolution. There's something happening here. This is the story that should be told. Jared, did you did you have like a, I guess, a favorite character, a favorite story out of all the guys you wrote about? I mean, you got Doug Latta in there. You have the you have Craig Wallenbrock. Richard uh, Shank is very interesting. Tewksbury. Did you have, I guess, and you you know the chapters are kind of it kind of bounces back and forth. But did you have like one particular person whose story? Um, you really enjoyed telling? Hmm. Look, they're all interesting for their own reasons, but as I sit here, it's impossible to sort of uh, not talk about Craig Wombrock. Craig Wombrock is truly uh, one of the most interesting people I've ever encountered in my life in any capacity, not just baseball, just a fascinating, fascinating individual. Uh, Craig Wombrock's in his mid-70s. He... Uh, did not play baseball after junior college. He had a scholarship to go play at San Diego State. He ended up dropping out after one semester, or not even one semester before the season started. Quits the team, ends up moving down to sort of the San Diego area, uh, moves down to the beach, smokes a lot of pot, and becomes a full-time surfer, essentially lives as a hippie for quite a while. Uh, totally done with baseball. Well, this guy uh, really might be the most influential sort of hitting mind uh, that's around right now. He's, he's revolutionized the game. He now works for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, their whole hitting program sort of runs through him. Uh, he's amazing. I don't want to spoil too much about Craig. He's such a fascinating character, but it, it's such a thrill to be able to tell his story because it's never been told before, and honestly, it should be. Yeah, I agree, and it's a great segue to my next question. So this is a White Sox 
podcast. And, you know, we're mostly on the minor league side, but most White Sox fans um, think back to Joe Borchard as just like a first round boss, like out of Stanford, you know, but after reading your book, he's basically patient, patient zero for Craig Wallenbrock. Um, can you just, I guess, however much you want to explain to our listeners um, what I mean by how, you know, his Wallenbrock's association with Joe Borchard led him to, you know, fixing Paul Canerco a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's funny when I started working on the book, I didn't really have any idea that the White Sox were going to be so prevalent in it. And, and they're involved a lot. They turned out to be involved a lot, which was really interesting, like not something I knew when I started. So Craig Wallenbrock uh, started working with Joe Borchard really when he was in high school. Uh, Joe Borchard, obviously, I'm sure White Sox fans know all about Joe Borchard, at least ones of a certain age. Uh, he was an incredible athlete in Southern California, baseball and bat- and football, uh, just incredible at both. Uh, and Craig Wallenbrock at the time was a scout uh, working for, I think maybe the A's or the, the Indians, maybe even the White Sox. He had a few scouting jobs over the years. And he was responsible for that area of the country. And he saw Joe Borchard a lot and said to him, hey, like I think you have a lot of talent, but uh, I might be able to help you get better. You know, I have some thoughts about your swing. And after a little prodding, Joe Borchardt eventually says, okay, let's do it. So Craig Wallenbrock is working with high school age Joe Borchardt and really turning him into a baseball star. He's a true superstar, ends up going to Stanford, uh, continues to work with Craig Wallenbrock, uh, ends up going to the White Sox and is a very coveted draft pick, and it didn't work out. I think most White Sox fans know that story. He, he kind of struggled. However, uh, a lot happened because of Joe Borchard's relationship with Craig Wallenbrock. And as it pertains to the White Sox, what happened was Joe Borchard got to know Greg Walker, who, again, White Sox fans know was the major league hitting coach for quite a long time with the White Sox, had a lot of success. Well, Joe Borchard introduced Greg Walker to Craig Wallenbrock, said, I think this is the guy you should know. This is the guy that's had a lot of success with helping me. You should get to know him. Well, Greg Walker became fascinated with Craig Wallenbrock. They became sort of lifelong friends. They're still very, very close. Um, and that eventually led to Craig Wallenbrock working with Paul Canerco directly when Paul Canerco was really struggling in his second season with the White Sox. Uh, he and Craig Wallenbrock, Canerco and Wallenbrock, together sort of remade Canerco's swings, did really big changes to his swing together. And, ever, and it was at, at that point when Paul Canerco became a star. And I talked to Paul Canerco for the book and he made it very clear that those changes sort of helped make him the player that he became. I think what's really interesting that you, you di- uh, document in the book was the philosophy behind what commonplace was in terms of hitting across the history of baseball, hit the ball hard, hit the ball hard on the ground. Now, obviously that's changed over time. And I'd love for you to explain why that's changed over time, referencing what you talked about related to Ted Williams. Ted Williams, he said, what's what's wrong with hitting the ball in the air and hitting the ball on a line and spraying it to all fields? And how does that relate to the evolution of pitching and hitting in today's game? Yeah, it's uh, Ted Williams got, Ted Williams, obviously a genius. Uh, no question about that. He was out there from the very beginning saying that you've been always told to swing down, but that's wrong. You want to swing up. And that was considered radical for a long time, uh, really until somewhat recently. 
did people start really taking sort of that hint for Ted, Ted Williams and realize we got to start swinging up and not down. Um, so we'd really changed the game, and now that's become commonplace, and it's really created what is sort of the modern swing revolution. Uh, it's about swinging up, not down. We don't want to hit the ball on the ground. Anyone that played Little League, anyone, me, you, all of us, at some point were told, was told to swing down. I certainly was. Uh, I think we all were. It's still commonplace in many, uh, in many Little Leagues and the youth baseball world. Swing down, swing down, don't swing up. Uh, Ted Williams helped change that, helped change all that, and now uh, that's the not just the future of baseball; it's the present. Uh, swinging up and trying to hit the ball in the air is really not radical anymore. It, it's commonplace. Jared, another thing that was super interesting, and you referenced Alex Rodriguez in the book, is just you know some of these really good hitters over time say the same things that they're like little league hitting coaches, like taught them like, Oh, this is what I do. And then you put the video on and they clearly are not doing that. Like they clearly are not trying to hit the top of the ball and hit the ball into the ground. Um, I guess, where do you think like the disconnect is there? I mean, is that, is that players just like saying that or do they truly just like, you know, think that they're, they're doing that when in fact they're, they're not doing it. From a scientific perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense. There's a real, disconnect for all people in and often what you think you're doing with your body and what you're actually doing. That is a real phenomenon. And that's, this, that, that's true with these great athletes, that the mental cues they use to have great success could be different than the reality of the biomechanics. And yeah, that does stem from the fact probably that they were always told that this was the ideal swing and they're having success. So therefore, that must be what I'm doing. Because that is what an ideal swing is. It's doing this. And, I'm, and that's what uh, I know that, hey, for instance, swing down is how you have success at hitting. And I'm having success at hitting, so I must be swinging down. Now, of course, we know that's not true because of video, because of technology and the like. But it is amazing how prevalent that is. And by the way, it doesn't mean Alex Rodriguez is wrong. You would never tell him to change, right? Because whatever he thinks he does is his reality. And it's working for him. It's having, you don't want it to be any different. But when you hear kids, if you're a kid and you hear Alex Rodriguez say that, what do they do? They take it at face value and just swing down. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, it's a, that's a big part of the book that I sort of get into. And it is really interesting. Yeah. So, the, I mean, we talked about Craig Wallenbrock earlier and, you know, I don't think anybody listening is surprised that, you know, Kenny Williams took some issue um, with, you know, maybe adding Craig Wallenbrock to the organization in some capacity. But it brings me back to, you know, the White Sox in general have been behind the eight ball just on the development side in the recent past and especially on the hitting side. Um, you referenced Matt Lyle in the book. That was like a one-year experiment that, you know, really, um, I guess, didn't really work out too well last year. He was kind of treated like an outsider. Um, his contract wasn't renewed, and then he left. But it did lead to some changes for the organization. The White Sox hired Ben Hansen as a senior uh, biomechanical engineer this offseason. They, you know, Ben Broussard's their director of hitting. It's kind of the first time that they've prioritized a position like this. They have Ryan Johansson, who's a local guy in their organization. And then they also have Frank Menachino as a big league hitting coach. Do you have any thoughts on any of those guys in particular or any of those changes that they've made finally coming into, you know, the 20th century, I guess, a little bit here? Well, what it sounds like that the White Sox are starting to realize what other teams already had realized well before 
which is you need an, organiza an organizational philosophy. Uh, you need a so approach where all through your development system, from the lowest level of rookie ball to the to the major leagues, everybody is rowing the same direction. That's why something like a director of hitting position is so important because it sort of set the tone for the entire organization, top to bottom. Uh, other teams have realized this earlier, like the Dodgers, the Yankees, and others. But then the White Sox are finally starting to realize that that for so long in the minor leagues, what would happen. And this is so crazy to even say, but it's true, is that you'd be in rookie ball and you'd have a hitting coach or a pitching coach who had an approach, and then you would move on to the next level the next year, and that hitting or pitching coach would have a completely different way of doing things than the one the year before. Uh, nobody was rowing the same direction. Well, now they are. So that is that is good news for the White Sox. And the other good news for the White Sox, just like many other teams, they're finally starting to realize, hey, uh, we could be a little creative about who gets hired. Uh, there's different kinds of people, people with unusual backgrounds. It doesn't just have to be sort of the ex-player or like the, the ex-pro guy, pro player who could become a coach. There is value in coaches with alternative backgrounds, maybe who didn't even play themselves. Uh, they were not open to that with Craig Wallenbrock back in 2005 when Greg Walker tried very hard to have the White Sox bring Craig Wallenbrock into the organization, and Kenny Williams shut it down. Uh, they've learned their lesson on that one, and I don't think that'll be a problem any longer. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's, I guess, somewhat somewhat promising. We, we liked those hires, like, when we saw them, just, like, in general, not that we knew, you know, a whole bunch about the guys, but it was good to see them kind of moving forward a little bit. I guess one of the other things in the book, um, I guess, in relation to Marlon Byrd, obviously, you put a lot of work into, you know, his story. And then, you know, when he had the second positive test, I guess, how, how much have people brought that up? And I guess, what do you say to people who immediately point to PED usage instead of studying like the real legitimate swing changes that have occurred with many of these guys, despite, you know, Marlon Bird and Chris Colabello um, having the issue that they had? Yeah, this is, that's a great question. And, it, you know, that was one of the most challenging things to parse through in the book, recognizing that in the eyes of many, the accomplishments of Marlon Byrd, of Chris Colabello, and by extension, a lot of these other guys were going to be invalidated by the positive steroid test. Uh, you can't ignore it. Uh, it happened. Those guys did test positive for PEDs, and it did sort of, in a way, set the movement back, uh, if, if that's a good, the right way of putting it. Um, for me, writing the book, I just tried to tell the story as honestly as I possibly could. This is this was the reality. This did happen. Uh, I am not here to tell you that, you know, Chris Colabello didn't take PEDs or that PEDs aren't the reason why Chris Colabello and Marlon Bird had the success they have. I don't know. We'll never truly know the answer, especially in the case of Colabello, probably, which is a very complicated situation that we probably don't even need to get into right now. But at the end of the day, it's up to the reader to decide. You could go look at the swings of these hitters, their swings sort of before and after they worked with these independent coaches, and you could make your own judgment. Did they actually change? To me, it's obvious that they did. I don't think it totally invalidates it. I realize there's going to be people that do see it that way. And uh, I just tried to present the facts to the best of my ability in the book and leave it up to readers to make their judgments. I think the Marlon Bird story itself is just fascinating because I remember he got hit in the eye and it was 
it was really scary. Like his career was potentially over after that injury, but he was able to come back. And then, like you said, you know, with the, with the help of swing changes, really put together a pretty solid end of his career, all things considered. Really awesome stuff related to the book. A couple more questions and we'll let you get going. I, I want to tie it back to you know, what we started with related to Major League Baseball and its proposed shortened season. You know, given the circumstances in 2020 and what we know today on May 11th, if there is a shortened season, say 80 games, what have you, no matter the, the alignment, the regional divisions or whatever, how does this affect teams across Major League Baseball in the sense that, hey, we weren't really expecting to compete this season. Maybe we were a fringe contender, but now all of a sudden we get hot for a few weeks. We're right in the mix there. Do you have a couple teams in mind that this directly affects positively? And how does this affect the White Sox? It's going to yeah, it changes everything. Everything that we thought about how the, the standings were going to shake up in, an, in a shorter season is out the window. Uh, anything could happen in an 80 game season. There are no, like, there are still haves and have nots, but those groups are sort of that those lines are much blurrier in a world where the season's shorter. It's just, just the truth. Uh, and it's a really good thing for a team like the White Sox. All these teams that seem to be sort of close, but probably not there yet. Sort of, so the White Sox I put in that category. Uh, some of the AL East teams like the Rays or the Red Sox. Uh, some of the AL West teams like the A's or the Angels. Uh, or even in the NL West, like a team like the Padres or, or a team like that, who... You thought, well, they're they're getting there, but they're not going to be able to compete with the Dodgers, not going to be able to compete with the Yankees or the Twins or whatever it is. Well, it's 80 games. Anything could happen. There is no sort of surefire division winner in an 80-game season. So if I'm a fan of a team that you sort of were pegging in to be sort of a second or third place team in, in that division, I'm sitting there going, all right, well, you never know. And also, remember, the playoffs in this world probably involve more teams as well. So... Uh, those teams that were sort of on the bubble uh, have a real opportunity to make some noise here. Yeah, Jared. And I mean, for the White Sox specifically, those are some of the things that we've been, we've been talking about. I mean, they were, you know, the White Sox were, I think seen as a little bit of a fringe contender. Minnesota should be the favorite. Nobody really knows what Cleveland was going to do. And the White Sox are very young, but you know, with seven playoff teams in the American league, and the White Sox should be able to use Michael Kopech, you know, right away if they want. Carlos Rodon should be back pretty quickly. You know, I think it could benefit them more than maybe some other teams in this. So that's, you know, one of the things that we're looking forward to. But I guess I just had one more for you. You wrote about the hitting revolution and, you know, MVP machine came out last year too. And, you know, Moneyball years ago. What do you think the next, like, advancement is in Major League? Is it player health possibly or something in that realm, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, player health was where I was going to go immediately. Uh, whatever, whoever is able to crack the code of keeping players healthy uh, is going to have an enormous advantage. Because as we all know, uh, it seems like who wins the World Series, who makes the playoffs, is basically determined by which team has the fewest sort of debilitating injuries at the wrong time. So if anyone's able to sort of crack the secret to the human body, that's going to change everything. It's going to, that's, man, I don't know how, what that's going to take if it's even possible, but absolutely that's going to be to me the next frontier because we've sort of reached the reached saturation as it comes to player evaluation and, and analytics. We're now in this world where player development is becoming the focus. Uh, and I do think health uh, is next. I really do. Really good stuff. Jared, Jared Diamond of the wall street journal, national baseball writer, 
author of Swing Kings. Last one, and, and we'll we'll let you get on your way here. A lot of baseball stuff happening. It's positive, but also it's under terrible circumstances. Wish we weren't dealing with it, but of course, obviously, this is reality. What about the prospects? Of course, here at Future Sox, we're prospect-oriented, and within the White Sox organization, we feel like they're you know laden with depth. But without a minor league season, we're kind of worried that these players aren't going to get their reps. What do you foresee happening to the minor leaguers? Uh, there's nothing's been nothing's been finalized in this department, but I'm very confident in saying there's not going to be a minor league season this year. Uh, I'd be very surprised if there's a minor league season this year. It just it's just going to be too much of a challenge to make that happen. You you can't play minor league games with no fans. It's not an option. So that probably means there's no minor league baseball this year. Now it doesn't mean that all the prospects are sitting out. I do believe that players are going to be brought to their camps. Uh, there's going to be sort of like a backfield league sort of thing. Will that involve the entire minor leagues? Just some players? I don't. That I do not know. Uh, but that's the reality of it. There's going to. There's not going to be minor league baseball as we know it. I do think that players are going to sort of have some opportunity to continue to develop somewhere. Uh, but is it going to be the same? Yeah, I really don't know the answer to that. It, it, it almost definitely won't be. Jared Diamond, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Don't be a stranger. We'll be uh, we'll be watching and, and learning and waiting for these reports. So really appreciate all the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Jared, where can people buy the book? It's available wherever books are sold, which obviously is a little bit fewer places than it was a few months ago. But of course, Amazon is the sort of easy, obvious answer, but not the only answer. Uh, independent bookstores out there in your communities are open, uh, maybe not for physical presence, but they are open for um, online orders. And these are small businesses, I'm sure, that could use your help. So if you're in the position to to buy the book, I know not everybody is right now, but uh, consider your local bookshop, places like IndieBoundBookshop.org to see uh, uh, pick it up there. That's Jared Diamond on Twitter, at Jared Diamond. Swing Kings, pick it up wherever books are sold. All right, we'll wrap up this podcast for Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. My name is Mike Rankin and James Fox as well along with us. Stay tuned to futuresox.com. We have all the latest, of course, on minor league scene related to the Chicago White Sox. Check us out on anchor.fm slash futuresox for an entire library. Also, check us out on iTunes and rate us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all next time.